Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello and uh, welcome to this segment on CTN. To learn more, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. And the topic for today is how is the government preparing to defeat global cybercrime? Cybercrime, as we all know, is international in nature. It spans the international boundaries and it's not been an easy thing for people to tackle. The governments are trying, private entities are trying to figure out how do they collaborate perhaps to fend off these intruders or people who have a malintent. We are trying things. There is an attention given by the press. We are even putting investments in. But are we really making progress? And if yes, in what areas and what else is left to be desired? So to that end, would like to talk about what else we could be doing so we do not have to continue to feel that the people with malintent are the ones who are winning. So to discuss that, I have Jake Margolis, who's the CISO at Mar- Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. Hey, Jake, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Great, great, Jake. So, um, yeah, very good. Thanks. Uh, and, and you know what? This is an interesting time that we're talking with the other type of crisis, which is around COVID-19. However, cybercrime is its own animal, which needs to be spoken about, because that could also be seen uh, as I would say, an excuse for an intruder to try to penetrate because we're busy with this other pandemic type crisis, right? So we have to become even more watchful in today's day and age. So, so that said, the first question I have is let's set the stage. So let's see your view on what do you feel is the current state of the global cybercrime and Compare that to the level of preparedness and readiness that we have as government and commercial entities. Well, I, I would I'd first say that, um, you know, you're the state where it, it, there's nothing to be incentivized cybercrime. So it's just getting worse, right? Because there's not, there's not enough deterrent in place that um, would uh, make it not profitable. The risk is really low for a cyber criminal. And I'm not a law enforcement agent. I'm just talking about somebody who's a former military and looking at how uh, we would look at insurgencies. And if you think about it, it if you wanted to deal um, with an uh, invading nation state or somebody that was uh, inter- what you viewed as an interloper, it's a lot more cost-effective to deal with an insurgency or deal as an insurgency than it is to, to try to stand up a uh, former uh, professional force. And the same way cybercrime is, is Similar to that, and I compare them to insurgencies a lot because it's low risk. There's not a lot that they have to um, to engage to get a big payoff, and so that's that's one of the biggest problems that you're dealing with. Is because it doesn't matter what we do at that level until you can start de-incentivizing. That's going to be an issue. But I would say the government is improving. Uh, we're becoming more aware, and we're responding more quickly than government may have responded in the past. Uh, and we're being realistic and talking more about resilience and focusing on our efforts and our ability to recover rather than constantly chasing our tails. So there's a lot more discussion about business continuity planning, uh, disaster recovery, um, and getting uh, improving your run books and your socks uh, and building relationships with uh, partner agencies and services 
And, and I think I'm even hearing that in some of the commercial uh, folks that I talk to and some of the, uh, I'm part of a cop CISO group and we talk about a lot of these same issues. And I'm hearing a lot of the same rumblings, whether it's public sector or private sector. A lot of people are starting to look at um, more of how I'm going to bounce back after I have this uh, cyber attack. Um, and they're making more risk-based decisions around that. And so I think that's good. I think it's good that we're looking at it that way because uh, you don't want to be paying people large ransoms. You don't want to be um, putting yourself in a position where you're making it easy for them, but you also want to be put in a position where you're crippled by it um, because then that's going to make it even, uh, that's going to incentivize the cyber criminal more because if they know you're crippled, then they're going to continue with the the tactics that they're using because it works, they get a big payoff. And there's not a lot that you can do to stop them from doing it. So to that end, um, the more resilient you are, in a way, that's de-incentivizing the crime because somebody says, hey, I've encrypted your data. I want X number of dollars. You say, yeah, that's fine. I've already recovered from that. Just move on. That in and of itself will start to de-incentivize that practice. Yes. So, uh, so Jake, based on what we have been doing in media for last many years in terms of following how the cybercrime is changing and what's the mindset of the CISOs, we initially saw when the cybercrime really started gaining momentum. The CISOs were very confident. They said, we're going to race faster than the folks who are perpetrators, and we are going to nail them. And in a couple of years, they said, perhaps that would not be, that was a tall claim. We might have to make sure that we can bounce back quickly. And then a few years again after the AI came in as a technology, they said maybe we should not just be waiting for attack to happen and try to become uh, to to basically do damage control. Let's go uh, go back and become proactive again. So, do you think we really have a straightforward strategy, or are we on this pendulum which will keep going back and forth? I think it depends on who you're talking to, but realistically, you have to kind of accept a couple of truisms. There's more of them than there are of you at the end of the day, right? You have way more cyber attackers and way more people that are trying to get into your networks, and you're just one team. Um, You have your partner agencies and whatever, and that's fine. So you really have to accept that the bad guy does get a bigger vote in how your day is going to go than you do when you get up in the morning. Um, and once you kind of accept that reality, you can start developing plans about how you deal with things. Uh, and again, uh, something that I used to say when I was leading missions uh, back when I was wearing a uniform is we would rehearse everything. So we would, I could ask every person on my mission, what's going to happen if we have a vehicle rollover? Or what's going to happen if we have a small arms ambush? Or whatever the case may be. And everybody on that mission would know how to respond. Now, a lot of times, none of those things ever happened, but everybody knew how to respond if it did. And so a lot of that is making sure that you're exercising your cyber incident response plan, that you're exercising your business continuity plan, that you're exercising your disaster recovery plan. And that is being proactive because then when an event happens, you're not going to run around and, you know, through the chaos, come up with a way to remediate what's with, with what's going on and where in some cases you may be successful in spite of yourself, but you're still going to find yourself um, not having something that's repeatable or well understood by the organization, which is going to cause problems. I think technology 
has helped a lot. I think having AI does help you to have a better understanding of what you're up against. Um, it helps you develop threat intelligence models because you can see if you're getting more hits from certain geolocations, if you're getting certain types of attacks. One of the indicators that we look at, uh, incidentally, is because email is a primary form of communication. It's also the primary attack vector, usually, because people want to do phishing to get their hooks into your network, is that we, um, we look at what our email gateway statistics are. And if we look at if something's shifting from things that are being blocked by because of a particular type of malware or are we getting an excessive amount of spam from certain domains? And are there certain types of subject lines that are starting to increase? And we run a lot of analysis on that. So a lot of machine learning has helped us in those areas to be proactive and better understand um, what the attacker is doing. Uh, but as far as being able to say that you can get proactive to the point where you can stop a criminal, um, from attacking your network, I, w- I wouldn't be able to agree or get behind that just because uh, they're innovating as fast as we are, and they're also using machine learning just like we are. And so there's that adds a level of complexity, and you won't win that arms race necessarily. Um, so you have to be more professional. You have to be more focused. You have to be more disciplined than the attacker. And that's really, if you can focus down at that level, um, and which focuses towards organizational cultures and a lot of other things. I think then you can be proactive in defending against cyber criminals. Now, what we have to look at is the collaboration that you mentioned, which is happening among your CISO groups and between government and the commercial entities. But that collaboration is primarily an ID exchange. However, On the other hand, you might have a whole nation state coming after you or a bunch Mm -hmm. of people with many more resources coming after you. And when it comes to you defending your fort, you are left by yourself. So besides just having those discussions over pizza and Coke or dinner or lunches, are we truly joining hands in true sense, allowing resource sharing, allowing intelligence sharing, and truly build that one bigger or rather stronger fort, which these intruders would have tough time penetrating versus they're actually having a party. The intruders are having a party because they are far, they always have an advantage over us who are trying to defend our position. So has anything even been thought in this direction? I would say yes, but I would say it still has a long way to go, too. Um, we do, you're right, we do have the partnerships, and in public sector, your government, at least in California, we, um, municipalities and government agencies are part of things like the Municipal Information Systems Association of California, known as MESAC, or the California County Information System uh, Services Directors Association, known as CISDA, and most public sector in the United States are, are joining, or not most, but a good chunk, and eventually it'll be most, is Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, the MSI SAC. Um, and then, you know, even within our offices, I coordinate with the California Office of Emergency Services uh, Cyber Integration Center for information and to uh, work with them as frequently as I can. Now, there's a lot of information sharing that goes on with that, and we're sharing our with that, what we would call tactics, techniques, and procedures, if you will. That's what we'd say what the attacker is doing. But we also share those, too. You know, it's, it's something as simple as, like, hey, what did you do for, uh, 
your secure web gateway or what are you using for uh, your firewalls or anything, right? What did you do for your enhanced detection and response? Um, hey, did you help? I wrote an RFP, but can, do you guys have an example of RFP language for um, endpoint protection or any number of those things? Those are all helpful collaborations. But as far as building the fort goes, I think uh, we're a long way from that for a couple of reasons, um, partly because there's political boundary concerns. But there's also um, the idea of actually understanding what it is you're trying to do. And that goes to you know, having the cybersecurity expertise. Um, to kind of cut through the noise and figure out what it is that you actually need for your enterprise to secure um, what it is you're trying to do. There's a lot of tools out there, and um, people are putting a lot of time and effort into that, for example. And I've seen some enterprises that are pretty well um, built as far as their actual security tools and the software they're using. But end users still are undereducated. And so if you spend a billion dollars on security, but an end user just absolutely has to have that wallpaper of those cute kitties saying, hang in there or something crazy like that, you're going to be done because they're going to bypass all your security by socially engineering the end user. Or if you spend a billion dollars on security and you've locked down, you have the most sophisticated tools on the planet, but you can't convince your end users to take their badges off when they go to Starbucks, you're still getting your security defeated. So there's a lot that has to go towards, it's, it's, it's not just the technology part or sharing that information. Um, sharing ideas of how we can change culture and how does government weigh in now to create awareness campaigns like we used to do to, say, keep kids off of drugs. There needs to be more of like a, a cybersecurity awareness cultural um, initiative, culture change initiative, I think, that will start to make the fort stronger because if you have really strong fort but under-trained troops, your fort's not very well defended at the end of the day, right? No, you're right about it. No, one is the fact that, okay, we want the whole village to come together like a utopia. And yes, I know mm -hmm. even before asking the question, it's going to be a, a, something which is a, a tall order, if you will. Even, now let's go to a corporation or an organization in one uh, as a unit. When you are looking at that, and you're trying to figure out what is the cost of us having a breach, it's huge. But then whether we will have a breach, no one can commit to it or, or claim that. And when you go with that type of a case, a use case or a business case, not every time you get the resources you need. And when that happens, an individual organization, maybe they're armed with collective intelligence from wherever, but you don't have the resources, that creates a major issue in an organization or the leader to say, yes, I had everything that I needed to prevent the breach from happening, yet they could get fired if the breach does happen. Is there something, and this is not something, not something new that's happening today, but is mm -hmm. there something we are doing as CISO community, as executive management, and all peers within the company at least, and maybe at the government level, to allow an organization to get some support from a policy, from government, from wherever, so that resource constraint is a non-issue when somebody's thinking security. But hold your thought. Before we get into this, let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Jake, I asked you a loaded, rather a tough question, and it's a loaded question, too, is a company needs resources, they may or may not have resources or the resources are not made available to the security leader because they are not able to claim that a breach is going to happen, even though they can show a formula that how much they would lose, the company would lose or an organization would lose if the breach does happen. So when a company or, an, or a government organization is left to, to deal with all of this themselves, they are forced to create constraints. And those constraints is where we lose our advantage or at least have lose the possibility or having a level playing field with the intruders. So is something being done between like a commercial and government partnership so that this resource is removed? Well, it, it is kind of a, that's, a, that's an interesting issues uh, on a couple levels, and, and there's a couple things going on there in your question. Uh, one is the resourcing one, and, and this is something that I've, uh, I often get into disagreements with, with other security professionals. Sometimes I, a lot of us say it this way, a lot of us don't. It's, it just depends on what camp you're in. I think fear, uncertainty, and doubt, which is what is typically used to get that first pot of money, um, is really a, a dangerous tool to use to get funding. Because if you do scare the board into cutting you a check and then nothing happens, where's the ROI, right? So that's, that's a big thing. And then you're going to go back and ask for more money, of course, because the threat's always evolving and you have to keep pace with the threat. So a little bit is you have to convince uh, people that this is a, a, an investment in their best interest and that it's going to be a continuing investment. Um, and so to a certain degree with that, you have a responsibility to develop governance um, that you can convince them that we're going to improve what we currently have. So it's a little bit uh, like coming to the fight with what you already have and convincing them that you can make that work, but you still need more money for the things that you, to, to do the improvement because you are, you're always going to need more money to get these things done. Um, but you're showing them some stewardship too. And you're also going to demonstrate how the security controls can make their life a little bit better. And I think a lot of times that's not spent. Whereas in my world, for example, where uh, we're looking at some things uh, in what I've done in the past, is I've taken this idea of the user has to have their own uh, portable uh, enterprise, with the, if you will, with them wherever they go. And it's this idea that if you had all the security while you were on the premises in the company, uh, the power of the cloud uh, is going to make you more productive, but the power of the cloud can also give you better security if you know how to leverage it. 
And so by allowing a user to have their identity checked in a zero-trust model no matter where they are, uh, and then if that user then once is validated and has access, then you've done a lot. And that's simple things like two-factor authentication, pushing certificates uh, to their uh, devices, um, giving them, uh, you know, let's just say smart card authentication. There's a number of ways you could do this. Um, and you don't even have to necessarily issue them devices. You can start separating their devices from the domain proper. But so you're doing all these things that are costly because these technologies I'm referencing, and I've only referenced like just barely scratched the tip of the iceberg for the family of technology that are out there that can make this work for people. But, and they're costly, but at the same time, you're greatly improving their life and you're making it so that they can work remote more easily. Um, and even in this current crisis, organizations that, um, that I know of, um, ours included, have had an ability to respond quickly with remote access without negatively impacting the employee or the operation with uh, more than adequate security controls around uh, the remote connectivity. So there's a win for the organization that they are now seeing that there's a value in that investment. They can see it. They can touch it. It makes sense to them. Um, but you're also getting better security in the process, too. But you have to be willing to compromise with them on what, you're, um, what you think uh, is the tightest controls you can put into place versus um, what they want for usability. And so, again, you're getting to this um, risk-based decision-making, and you're, and you're sharing that risk with the, uh, with the business holders and, and making them understand what it is you're trying to do. And because you've let them know you understand what it is they're trying to accomplish, you understand the risk, but you need them to give you these the, the security concessions in order to make that happen more securely, but you can make it happen for them. Then you're going to have a partnership with executive management that's going to allow you to get into a situation that now they're intimately familiar with everything that you're trying to do. And it's not just a quarterly briefing that says, hey, these are the security issues and these are the, the technologies that we can do to stop it, and this is what we have to do. And you're not having them walk away with the sense that they're impervious to a cyber attack, but instead they're walking away that they're sharing in that with you, and everybody has kind of a shared responsibility in order to have those conveniences. And then that really comes down to communicating strategy, cybersecurity strategy, and then how each initiative is a mission objective for your security strategy for the various technical groups and business units and that they're all a part of that. So if I were to make a comment on your response that this is looking inward in an organization, right? Within the organization, you'll build mm -hmm. a strategy, you'll work with, with people. Now let's look at a little macro. We are to some mm -hmm. extent still a village. We are still connected. We could still form, become, or rather uh, serve the purpose of a weakest link in a chain which <laughs> an intruder could use to get into another organization through you because you were weaker. Yes. That's one. So if that's the case, that means the village has to protect itself. Now, with that yes. said, insurance and compliance mandates Executive, same executive management doesn't question, doesn't debate that a whole lot and writes the check. And here we are going through strategy and nothing wrong with it, though. 
but we are fighting a much bigger battle and based on what we could do because of resource constraint, you're not going to go and try to get a $5 million, which you actually need when you're struggling to get a million. So you will Mm -hmm. compromise even in the request. But what did that do to secure the village? Because the topic here is global cybercrime and not cybercrime in my company, where we are even spanning boundaries. So it could be intergovernmental. It could be interstate. Mm -hmm. It could be between commercial and state, where we say security is a cost and a risk. We can bear the cost by playing the co-op. So we share the risk, but by sharing the cost, we minimize the risk. Mm -hmm. Has this approach been used? You mentioned to some extent it has been used in the state departments, right? Different states. And maybe federal and state might be doing something of that sort. But frankly, now federal and state and, and commercial entities are also to some extent working with each other especially in this day and age. So is there something being tried in this regard where the money is produced, whether as form of a mandate or as as part of an insurance, whatever that it takes, so that we are not burying ourselves in trying to convince our executive management that they need it. And if they don't agree, we render the whole ecosystem vulnerable. I think it's interesting to use the word compliance because uh, I think that's a big part of what drives a lot of stuff. But sometimes um, compliance doesn't come with money, unfortunately, right? And there's a lot of uh, – uh, and then sometimes it does. If you look at the HIPAA community, there's uh, – you know, the healthcare community, there's – they get meaningful use money from the federal government that they can use to uh, help improve their security architecture or to do other improvements that meet HIPAA compliance requirements, not necessarily – just security, but they get this money, um, and, I, and I don't know how much it is, um, but it's, something's better than nothing, right? And so there is some of that that does go on depending on the compliance body that you're talking about. But if you look at, in the business world, a little bit uh, retail, let's just say PCI DSS compliance, that's not a law. That's uh, a compliance body that most banks adhere to, or you're not going to be able to process credit card payments, but it's not the law. And so where are you going to get the money to meet your PCI DSS compliance? You're, you're probably going to have to take that out of pocket at some point. But you can make your um, vendors or your partners that you work with that have to leverage those same systems or have access to those systems or however you're making that work. You can require compliance within your uh, procurement language. Um, things, simple statements like we reserve the right to audit your security policies. Um, in as much as that they talk to our networks kind of kind of discussion. Um, you can look at um, requiring uh, artifacts in the contractual part of it of wanting to see their security policy, if it's appropriate because you're, you're doing some sort of connection with them. Um, you can do, depending on the, the sensitivity of what it is, requiring background checks. There's even a security scorecard of vendors out there now that will give you at least the IT or cybersecurity score of a vendor, but those services cost money. So now you're shouldering that cost. But you can then share that with your partner's supply chain. So there's at least one company out there um, that will allow you to uh, do a scorecard on, on your vendors 
But then because of that license, you can share that information with your vendors about themselves. So you're helping them improve themselves for what you know from the outside looking in, what an outside um, audit might see uh, or vulnerability look at that organization might see. So that's helpful at that level. But there's no, there's no sharing of dollars that's going to make that happen. And what I'd say is just in my last statement where I said sometimes coming to the table with what you have, um, sometimes, you know, we used to say that when I was in the Army, you fight with what you got. You know, we used to say that kind of very informally because sometimes you don't have everything that, you're, that you need at that particular moment, but you can't avoid that fight. That's true in cyber in that when you come to the table, you're saying you want money because you want to buy a really great uh, cloud-based identity as a service engine. And the board says no. Well, does that mean you just don't do two-factor authentication? Of course not. It just means that you have to figure out how else you're going to do it. And so sometimes it's better to figure out how you're going to do it first so that you have that. And then when you do remote connectivity or when you're working with your members of your supply chain, you can enforce some of those standards on them. For, uh, for me, what I've done in the past is um, when vendors need to get connected to my enterprise, I require them to two-factor authenticate with accounts I provide. So, yeah, it costs me a little bit extra in licensing, but I gain a lot in peace of mind because I know that however they're connecting to me, I'm not sharing with them directly anymore. I'm making them validate who they are before they connect to my enterprise. And that the cost that it cost me for a headcount for, say, Office 365 or something like that is way cheaper than what it would cost me to risk um, letting me uh, do some sort of open file transfer with their organization um, in, the, in the broader picture. So it just depends on how you want to look at uh, tackling that um, from the takes a village perspective. Um, to a certain degree, it takes a village that you have to communicate with everybody um, what your standards are, what you think standards should be. And the government, again, should be publishing best practices, and they do. Um, CIS, Center for Internet Security, is, I think, largely funded by Homeland Security. Don't quote me on that because uh, I don't know that for 100%. But I know that they're heavily involved with the Department of Homeland Security, and they're kind of the organization behind MSISAC. But they offer CIS benchmarks and the CIS Top 20 control. These are things that are out there that people can grab and take a look at. The Department of Defense published the Security Technical Implementation Guide, which, which anybody can download. They're free. You can go out there and download these Security Technical Implementation Guides, which have been good enough for the DOD for uh, a long time, and apply them to your system. Uh, it just takes some, where some determination and wherewithal of the IT staff or the security staff within the company that's downloading them to make that happen. Um, I think that there's um, the, the tools that you use to validate that are free as well. Um, so there's a lot of that that's out there. Um, I think there could be better information campaigns about free resources like Quad9DNS or things like that that actually help with security. And even though you don't get much out of it, it does provide you a level of security when you don't have the money to invest in it. Um, so there are some things that are out there that people... Um, that the government could make people aware of. I know that there's some legislation in the works at the federal and the state level uh, for different reporting requirements and vulnerability reporting or remediation activity requirements. That um, I think is going to go a long way towards securing government. I don't know what it's going to do for the private sector because I know that there's been certain legislation that, while 
the intent is good to protect uh, individual consumer data, it's uh, um, really a Herculean lift for a lot of the companies to shift into compliance for those directives. So, um, on the one hand, if you get government involved and says, hey, this is what you have to do to be cyber secure, companies are going to turn around and say, well, I can't afford that, so how, do, how, how am I supposed to do that? Um, and then again, it comes back to we should be looking at things like the, the getting back to basics. We should be communicating with small business, medium-sized businesses, um, even large companies, but I think large companies to a certain degree really do have it figured out a little more just because they have the density and the staffing and the ability to attract the talent to, to work within their organizations. But they, they, sure, they have their problems to be sure. But we're looking at, you know, things, you know, like vulnerability and patch management. Make sure you're doing that. User education, two-factor or multi-factor authentication. Um, you know, uh, web application firewalls, just real basic stuff that you can put into place. Um, and there are basics that if people are um, handling that, network segmentation, those kind of things, that if people understand that and they're applying it, the basics are well communicated as part of an education campaign then I think that people overall might be in a better place. But you'd be astonished at how many people don't do the basics. It's staggering how many organizations do not do the basics. And I think that uh, if we could just get into a place where people understand those and have a roadmap to get those implemented, then we would probably be in a better place to, to stand up globally, if you will, as a village. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And Jake, when I come back, uh, let's let's talk about this interesting issue of security leaders and their team. They, in many cases, are reported to be fired because they could not secure the fort or keep the fort secured. Was okay. it truly their fault? Was it something beyond them? Did the organization recognize it's beyond them and they did not give them the resources or no matter how many resources did they give them, could they have actually protected when we have a nation state or some other bigger entity working against? So should there be something which would allow security leaders to not necessarily get an immunity along with their team, but at least have some sort of an intervention so that it does not further disincent security professionals to continue to take jobs which are equally important here at today's day and age where they know they're going to work their best, but then they could also be fired for no fault of their own. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjog All. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back. So, Jake, I don't want to get fired for what I cannot control. And it's not that I don't have the right intentions. Maybe that's what most of the security leaders and professionals are thinking today. But many of them also have received the pink slip because things did not go well. And in some cases, either were they were they were made responsible or shown as responsible or as a scapegoat. But does it not create a disincentive for the security leaders and professionals to continue in that profession? Or even if they do so, they would like to jump ship and leaving that organization much less secure than it ever was. Isn't this a problem which is pervasive? And isn't this something which is going to cause a lot of problem or increase vulnerability if we allow this to happen where at will an organization says, I'm going to let a security leader go because a breach happened. Can government intervene? Can there be policies against this? Yeah, I, I don't know that that would be, that the government can. It would be like saying, can government stop somebody from firing a police officer for something unless it's negligence, right? And in the cases of law enforcement or other entities where people get fired from what we would consider protective services type jobs, um, there's generally clear negligence or somebody violated the law. And what you're bringing up, it's not like that. You're right. For security professionals, you didn't break a law. You did the best you could do. And you're still probably having to take the fall. The thing that I can liken a, a, a CISO position to the most of the in the environment you're talking to is if you look at some of the events that have happened uh, in the press uh, with the military in the last couple of decades, every once in a while you'll hear a story about a commanding officer that's released for cause because of something somebody else does in their command. And uh, when I was in the, the Army, that was something that was impressed upon us is that you're responsible for everything your command does or fails to do. So in that level, there's a level of accountability that you accept when you take that job. So to a certain degree, I think senior security leaders, um, certainly not team members, but senior security leaders accept that accountability when they take the role uh, of CISO on that uh, they're responsible for everything that happens or that fails to happen um, within respect to security. And ideally, you're taking that on. It's kind of a leadership thing. You're shouldering that. And because you have that accountability for leadership, you're expressing that you that you know that you that you're sharing in that risk and that you have that, but at the same time, organizations um, are starting to learn. I've seen it with a few that you don't gain anything by firing your CISO if they didn't do anything wrong. Um, but there needs to be some clear understanding. So I think again, the government could go to the point of uh, seminars, education campaigns, uh, talking to um, corporations. Uh, there's certainly enough events that we're all at together um, to make sure that they understand that, uh, you know, if you know a nation state wants to go after your network, there's probably not a lot your security team can do to stop the attack from happening. So what I would look at is that's where you have to look at resilience. If you got hacked and you were able to recover quickly and your losses were somewhat minimal uh, relative to the scale of the attack, um, or even if they weren't, but you, because the attack was something that was completely out of control, let the forensic analysis kind of paint the picture for did you do everything you could have done? 
Um, and then you can make a better decision about whether or not uh, you want to let that CISO go or not. I'm always telling people not to do it when, in the conversations that I've had with people because um, it, you're asking somebody to have a crystal ball and to, to foresee every possible thing that an attacker is going to do. And I tell them it's called zero day for a reason. So when, when that zero day attack or, or vulnerability is leveraged, um, it's kind of hard to hold somebody accountable for something that they just didn't have the uh, uh, psychic wherewithal, if you will, to know that that was going to happen. So I, I think you want somebody who's intimate, familiar, intimately familiar with your enterprise to help you get back up and running. And that, that message, I, at least in the circles that I've been in, uh, has resonated well with decision makers. And I think that's the message that's coming out from the federal government and the state government. Um, and again, I can't speak for them. I'm not a representative of federal or state. But from what I've seen uh, at different events and what, what I've seen going around in uh, other circles, is that um, that mantra of let's fire the CISO because they, uh, you know, we had a breach is starting to slowly trickle off because I think people are realizing you are better off with the person that knows your enterprise if you're to remediate the uh, cyber attack um, or to, or to um, remedy the situation so that it doesn't happen again so that you can take those lessons learned and have some continuity. Um, now, when there's negligence, I think that uh, that is a, that can be a valid business decision. When people have knowingly not patched vulnerabilities or they haven't wanted to communicate it because they don't like to give bad news to their board or their CEO or their CIO or what have you, um, you know, that's kind of on you when you're the CISO. You, part of your job is delivering bad news, and if you're not prepared to do that, then you probably should look at another career field. Um, because that's part of what you're paid to do. And then um, when you're doing that, I mean, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. But uh, you definitely want to be in a position where you are making people informed. And if you've informed them and you've made it a risk-based decision and said, hey, here's what we need to do and here's the risk if you don't do it. Here's what it's going to cost you if you do do it. Um and this is what we can do, and this is what it's going to cost to do these compensating controls to have, you know, something in between. If you've done that homework, then there shouldn't be any reason why you should lose your job except the fact that, you know, sometimes that's just the way it goes down, and it shouldn't, but that's just the way it happens. Um, but I think it's getting better in that sense is that if you are doing those things, you are communicating risks, and you are communicating what the issues are, and you're not keeping bad news because you don't want to tell people bad news, um, then I think uh, you're seeing that less and less um, CISOs are actually getting fired because they, they are doing the right things. But again, I think all of this can be summed up in, you know, what leadership quality the organization expects from the CISO and is the CISO accepting the fact that their job is primarily a leadership role and not a technical role anymore? and that they're supposed to have a certain level of accountability on their shoulders for things that are going on within the organization. And I think that's where the partnership is. Um, but as far as having the government legislate that, I don't know that that's a, a, a good way to go because, you know, once something's in black and white, it, it, that can equally be used uh, to protect somebody who actually has no business being in the job. And so I think to a certain degree, providing all of the guidance and telling people you know, that, hey, maybe you probably shouldn't fire the guy just because, or the person, I should say, 
um, because something bad happened. I think that's, that, that can be a powerful message. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that uh, corporations are still going to do what they're going to do. I think medium and small businesses are still going to do what they're going to do. And actually, let's be real, small businesses probably don't have a CEO. Even medium-sized businesses probably don't have a CISO. And so um, when you're looking at that level, though, some of that stuff even falls within the CIO's world um, or the IT manager or whatever it is within that side, depending on the size of the organization. Um, but whoever is accountable for that cybersecurity function, regardless of what their job title is, they're sharing that responsibility to the people that run the organization. And, um, and again, it's on them from a leadership perspective to communicate that to the organization's board or um, managing stakeholders so that they understand that this is a shared responsibility. Uh, but I, I wish I had a better answer for if there was a way to protect them. I think that um, from a negotiating perspective, um, you know, when you get into your, to your various job functions, I think that's probably where they may or may not have some room to, to work with the, with the corporations. But, um, again, you know, uh, I think that's part of the, the risk that you accept when you step into the position. So it's really hard to, uh, you know, I would say uh, I, how I would judge um, the effectiveness of, of a CISO is if something did unfortunate happen in the company and they decided that, uh, you know, you, you had to step down, but you were willing to still help them remediate their problem and because part of it is, is you're the public face for that failure, to so to speak, because accountability does rest with you at that level, then um, how gracefully are you going to step down from that position and do the right thing by the company because you knew that was part of the job when you took it? And I think that that's kind of where the understanding is. Um, but I agree with you in that you said it's a problem because you mentioned that earlier, and I'll say why I agree with you is because I see that that scares a lot of CISOs that I've met into making decisive action or taking decisive action, I should say, because they're afraid that if they do something and it doesn't remediate the problem or, or they still get a breach even though they took that action, they're thinking that as long as they still save money or whatever the case may be, it makes it harder for them to, to move. And so I, I think that um, it is definitely something that's unique in that world. But it's, uh, it's not an easy problem to solve. On behalf of our listeners and uh, everyone who is at the CTN uh, organization, I'd like to thank you, Jake, for sharing your insights and thoughts about how stakeholders and security leaders at government and commercial entities can join hands to prepare and effectively defend against global cybercrime. Thanks so much. This was very insightful. Thank you. And listeners, please like us on Facebook. Search for CTN, that is CIO Talk Network, and be sure to follow us on Twitter and join our LinkedIn group. Thank you again for listening to this segment on CIO Talk Network. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>